Section 10 of Astounding Stories 10, October 1930. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Astounding Stories 10, October 1930, by Various. Section 10, Prisoners on the Electron, by Robert H. Liedfried, Part 2. They had come upon the footprints where the path made a turn, leading into a dense growth of trees and underbrush. And as Carruthers knelt beside the path, he heard a rustle as of something moving directly behind him. Wonderingly, he turned his head to trace the disturbance. But the woods seemed empty. Strange, he murmured. Did you hear something moving in back of us, Nan? Nan shook her head. You don't think we're in any danger from these beasts, do you? Carruthers said nothing for the moment. Instead, he looked sharply in all directions and saw nothing. Let's push on until we come to some kind of a shelter. Perhaps we'll find people much like ourselves. Down the path they hurried, glancing curiously right and left at unknown flowers and trees. A bird with brilliant feathers skimmed above their heads, uttering shrill cries. Other voices from the birds and animals in the woods took up the cry. The woods grew denser as they pushed into the unknown. In the woods at their right, a rodent squeaked as some larger animal pounced upon it. Presently they came to a pool of water roughly seventy feet across. While they knelt to quench their thirst, they saw two young deer eyeing them from the far side. Soft feet pattered behind the kneeling couple. Carruthers half-whirled as he rose to his feet and peered into the jungle behind him. A blur of reddish-brown vanished behind a tree. Man or animal, Carruthers couldn't determine. He grasped Nanette by the arm and pulled her back to the path. Quick, he whispered, there's someone or something following us. I'm sure of it now. Nanette's voice trembled slightly. What is it, Aaron? I don't know. He turned his head again. This time he saw the thing that was following. A low ejaculation of alarm escaped his lips. A gigantic ape! The mouth of the creature sagged grotesquely, revealing two rows of yellow fangs, and its orange-colored eyes were burning coals set close together. Carruthers sucked in a deep breath. "'Run, Nan,' he gritted. "'I'll try and scare him away.' Simultaneously with the scream of fright from the startled girl, a huge mountain of grayish flesh and bones blocked the downward slope of the path. Carruthers paled as he turned and faced the new menace. Coming directly toward them, he saw an immense animal so great in size that it seemed to shut out the light. A prehistoric dinosaur! It came slowly and leisurely, swinging its great red mouth from side to side. Other denizens in the woods, sensing the presence of the huge killer, fled in a panic of alarm. Their shrill cries increased the terror that froze the hearts of the two earth people. Nanette clung to her companion in abject terror, unable to move. Her fear-stricken eyes were wild and staring as the mountain of flesh pushed towards them. The animal's long neck arched far in front of its body, and its long pointed tail remained out of sight within the trees. Carruthers backed off the path into the underbrush, dragging the girl after him. The jaws of the huge animal opened wide with anticipation. Lumberingly, he turned from the path and followed. Trees crashed before its gigantic bulk. The woods became a bedlam of snapping branches. The horrified scream of the girl ended in a gurgling sigh. She toppled to the ground in a dead faint. Carruthers flung himself beside her crumpled body and gathered it into his arms. A quick glance he threw at the spot where he had last seen the gigantic ape. The animal was no longer there. It had disappeared. 
The man's lips became a hard straight line. Even as he straightened to his feet, the leaves and branches of an overturned tree whipped his face. The red-mouthed dinosaur was perilously near, so close that Carruthers could smell its great glistening body. The odor was musky and foul. Stumbling blindly, he attempted to widen the distance between himself and his pursuer, but the hungry dinosaur pounded steadily on its course. There was no getting away from it. Its beady eyes sought out its prey, and its keen smell told it exactly where the earth beings were. On and on staggered Carruthers. The extra burden of the girl hampered his movements. Unseen roots tripped him time and time again. Each time he scrambled to his feet and picked up the unconscious girl. Briars tore at his clothing and stung his hands. The underbrush was thickening. A warm, dank smell clung to the vegetation now almost tropical in nature. Beads of sweat rolled down the man's forehead and into his eyes, but the horrible fear of those red, dripping jaws spurred him to renewed efforts. He doubled to the left, hoping to throw the animal off his tracks. The undergrowth seemed to thin out at this point. Renewed hope flowed through the young scientist's blood. He stumbled on blindly, scarce watching where his feet were taking him. A sigh of relief came to his lips. Ahead of him he saw a clearing. His stride lengthened, and he broke into a shambling run. Then it was he saw towering walls rising up on both sides of him, steep walls that he could never scale, even if alone. He tried to change his course, but the huge bulk of the pursuing dinosaur effectively blocked his path. There was no alternative but to push on and pray for an opening in the rugged cliffs. Abruptly a sigh of despair escaped his lips. The walls of the canyon narrowed suddenly, and across it stretched a wall of bare rock. He realized too late that he had returned to the base of the plateau where he had spent the night. The grim, towering walls hemmed him in completely from three sides. At the fourth side bulked the dinosaur, coming slowly, ponderously. Beady eyes peered down cunningly at the helpless man and woman. Confident now that its prey couldn't escape, it extended its huge bulk across the narrow canyon for a leisurely killing. Carruthers glared at the monster with fear-distended eyes. In his heart he realized that there was no escape. He had no means of defense, no way to combat the huge monster but flight, and even that was now denied him. Closer and closer inched the killer until its great red mouth appeared like the firebox of a huge boiler. Hot breath fanned the man's cheek. The nauseous odor of the beast made his stomach wrench. He dropped to his knees, close to the inert figure of the girl, and glared vengefully into the beady eyes. The gaping mouth at the end of a long, supple neck jerked forward. Carruthers dragged the girl away just in time to escape the gnashing teeth. The dinosaur stamped angrily. Once again Carruthers felt its hot breath beating upon his face. He cringed at the thought of this kind of death. No one would ever know what happened, not even his closest friend, Carl Danzig. What a mess things were. Why didn't the red mouth of the mighty dinosaur close over him and crush out life? Why must he kneel in torture? From near at hand a piercing scream rang through the air, a harsh scream, a terrifying scream. Carruthers raised his head. The dinosaur had twisted around to glare hatefully at the disturber of its meal. Other screams splintered the forest air, and as the kneeling man watched he saw the great red ape who had been dodging his footsteps a short time before slouched between the dinosaur's hulking body and the wall of the cliff. Behind it came others, black mammals with curving arms that dragged along the ground. Their fangs were bared. They were in an ugly mood. 
Arriving in front of the dinosaur and less than four feet from the earth man and woman, the leader silenced its followers with a low growl and turned in concentrated fury upon the dinosaur. Its long arms drummed a throbbing tattoo upon its hairy chest. The dinosaur bellowed protestingly against the attitude of the apes and gorillas. The ape leader protested with equal violence. The dinosaur shifted uneasily, wagging its heavy head from side to side. On all sides came deep growls from the mammals. Carruthers watched all this display torn between doubt and fear. Which side would win? How could the apes and gorillas, huge as they were, hope to force the dinosaur away? But the apes were masters. This much was apparent. Inch by inch the dinosaur backed away, glaring vengefully, and having reached a spot where it could turn around it did so. Presently the ground trembled as it made off through the steaming jungle. The leader of the mammals turned and faced the earth people. Long, searching minutes passed. Its close-set eyes seemed to be studying them. Nanette stirred and opened her eyes. The sight of the anthropoids caused her to recoil. "'Steady, Nan,' spoke Crowther softly. Other apes and gorillas gathered around the giant red animal. They displayed no hostility, only an intense interest. One by one they squatted before the earth people until they formed a half-circle, reaching from the one wall of the rocky plateau to the other. While they sat there it began to grow dark. Crowther removed his watch and ventured a glance at it. Daylight had lasted less than three hours. An hour for twilight, then it would be dark.' Evidently, the cycle around the nucleus of the atom took approximately ten hours. Nanette sat up. Aaron! He answered without removing his eyes from the red ape less than four feet away. Don't look at me, Nan. Concentrate on the big red fellow. He's evidently in control. If we act the least bit frightened, they might decide to destroy us. What are they waiting for? Why don't they go away? We'll know before long. I imagine they're trying to figure out who we are and what we are doing on their tiny planet. Darkness descended rapidly. Overhead, a small moon rose majestically in the heavens and started its journey through the night. Its faint light revealed the fact that the apes showed no intentions of leaving. They still squatted before the earth people in a half-circle of staring brown eyes. Whatever fear Carruthers had felt towards the animals died away. They're harmless, he told Nanette. Get some sleep if you can. Long after the tired girl had drifted into slumber, Carruthers sat with his back against the wall, mentally trying to figure the whole thing out. The dinosaur was real enough, yet the eight men had frightened it away, in fact, had compelled it to go without actually engaging in combat. No question about it, the anthropoids were in control. But who controlled them? Quite suddenly his eyes snapped open. Daylight had come again, he must have fallen asleep. The shrill chatter of the ape-man came to his ears. The red ape leader shuffled to his feet and looked from the earth people to the spot in the jungle whence came the chatter. Abruptly he opened his mouth and emitted a flood of gibberish sounds. The gorillas and apes at his side flattened their bodies against the rocky walls in attitudes of expectant waiting. "'What's happening?' gasped the girl. "'There's no telling,' whispered Aaron. "'It must be someone or something of importance. Note the expressions of awe and reverence on the faces of the ape-men. "'My God, Nanette, look!' Out of the depths of the jungle emerged seven white beings. Human or animal, it was impossible to tell. They were huge creatures with the bodies of men. Erect of carriage, almost human in looks, they contrasted strangely with the red apes and the black gorillas. Six of them appeared to act as bodyguard for the seventh. 
As they reached the space in front of the two earth people, the bodyguard stepped aside. The seventh white one came to a dead stop. Long and intently he stared at the man and girl crouched against the wall. And the scrutiny seemed to please him, for he smiled. Carruthers eyed the figure uneasily. He saw what seemed to be a man dressed in a long fibrous garment. With white hair and beard it was a strange figure indeed for an ape-man. He saw also that the eyes were well-spaced, a mark of intelligence. The forehead was high and broad, and as Carruthers mentally studied the creature, strange and bizarre thoughts crossed his mind. The mouth of the white ape-man twitched, as if he were going to speak. The heavy lips parted. A single word came to Carruthers' ear. Man? Carruthers nodded. We are from the earth. The lips of the ape-man moved painfully as if speech came with the utmost difficulty. The prophecy of the Great One has been fulfilled, even as it has been written. The red apes and black gorillas allowed their eyes to wander from their white leader to the two earth people, and their faces reflected the supernatural awe with which they regarded the earth people. It's uncanny that an animal can speak our language, breathed Nanette. As if he hadn't heard her, Carruthers spoke again. We are from the earth, he repeated. We have been on your world many hours, and we are both hungry and thirsty. Words come hard, came from the lips of the white-bearded one. I have not used them for years. And who are you? asked Carruthers. The white-bearded one paused, as if to recall some distant echo from the past. I am the last of the tribe of Esau. But come, this is no place for speech. Long have I and my followers waited for this hour. Without another word he swung around. The six guards enclosed his aged body in a hollow square and the procession moved away. They came after a short journey to a natural opening leading to the heart of the plateau. The apes and gorillas, with the exception of the red leader, remained outside. The remainder of the party pushed through a tortuous tunnel until they reached a cavernous opening directly beneath the plateau. Vertical openings in the walls furnished light and air. The white chieftain spoke in a strange tongue to his followers, and they instantly prepared three couches in a far corner of the cavern. As the earth people seated themselves on the skins that made up the couch, they were both conscious of a faraway rumbling like peals of thunder. Not having seen any signs of a storm outside, Carruthers turned inquiringly on the aged chieftain. The old man's eyes were shadowed with grim foreboding. I have ordered something to refresh you and your companion, he said. Eat first, my friends. We will talk later. The six bodyguards left the main cavern. Presently they returned with large trays made of fan-like leaves resembling the palmetto. Fresh fruits and uncooked vegetables formed the bulk of the meal. In silence they ate. After the litter had been cleared away, the guards withdrew with the exception of the giant red ape who crouched near the opening to the tunnel. I'm glad you have come, began the old chieftain, but sorry, too. Our planet or rather the higher forms of life upon it, are doomed. Again there came to the ears of the earth people that far-off beat of sound that seemed to shake the ground. They looked to the white-bearded leader for an explanation. Ah, you hear it too, murmured the other. For centuries we of the great tribe of Esau have fought for the supremacy of our little world. Ever since the Great One appeared in our midst and instructed us in world knowledge, and this great one, as you call him, spoke Carruthers, who was he? He was from your world. I never saw him. 
He comes to me as a legend. For years he toiled among us, teaching and instructing until we mastered his language. He called himself Dahlgren. Later he ruled all the tribes. We of the Esau line he made into leaders because of our higher intelligence. The tribes of Zaku were trained for war. Perhaps you have noticed the chief of all the Zakus. He is crouching now beside the entrance to our inner walls. He is Marbo, and his followers live in the jungles. And does he talk as you do? The white chieftain shook his head. No, only we of the Esau tribe have mastered speech. Not counting the women of our tribe that comprise our numbers, we are only seven in all. I owe Marbo my life, as does also my companion, said Carruthers. Marbo looks upon you earth people as God, spoke the old chieftain. He and his followers will protect you with their lives. And who rules over and beyond, questioned Carruthers, waving his arm to cover the remaining portion of the electron. There is no rule beyond except that of force. The great one called them by name. Morosaurus, Diplodocus, the horned Ceratosaurus, and many others whose names I have long forgotten. They are our enemies whom we cannot destroy, and their numbers increase from year to year and are slowly backing us upon our last stronghold. Isn't there anything we can do? asked Carruthers, feeling a quiver of apprehension along his spine. Slowly the old chieftain shook his head. Nothing whatever. Marbo and his followers can control one or two, but when the herds begin to push on into our territory, we are doomed. Even now their rumblings and bellowings come through the jungles. Their thirst and hunger for flesh is enormous. Carruthers turned upon the girl. The old chief's words explain everything, Nan. Professor Dahlgren has been here and gone. He lived a lifetime in the span of a few hours' earth time. Now it looks as if we were destined to follow in his footsteps. I'm not afraid, said the girl. Nothing can be worse than what we have already passed through and her eyes softened as she placed her small hands within those of Carruthers. We have each other, Aaron. He smiled reassuringly and turned to the old chieftain. I am Carruthers, a friend and assistant to Dahlgren. The girl here is Nanette. The chieftain smiled gravely. And I am Zark. Welcome to my kingdom, Carruthers and Nanette. We need you here. Now tell me of your world. For long have I waited for a follower of the great Dahlgren to appear before my people. Throughout the remainder of the day Carruthers talked. The shafts of light paled at the end of the short day. Night came, bringing with it a sense of security against the increasing hordes that thundered and trumpeted beyond the borders of the jungle. In the morning Zark instructed Marbo to remain close to Carruthers at all times. So the young scientist left the cavern and ascended the path leading to the top of the plateau. He looked at his watch and compared the second hand with the nucleus atom sailing across the heavens to estimate its speed. Days passed as he made his observations. Meanwhile, he had searched and found the exact spot wherein he and Nanette had first stepped foot onto the electron. This spot he carefully mocked off with a ring of huge boulders carried up by the followers of Marbo. Then he began to calculate upon his pad. There must be no mistakes. He and Nanette must be within the magic circle at the estimated time. Between times, he helped Nanette construct their living quarters in the cavern. Zark had furnished them with skins and furs with which to cover the walls. Carruthers made a fireplace of stones and restored the lost art of fire to Zark, Marbo, and their followers. 
Days slipped by like minutes, short days filled with excursions into the jungles. Carruthers' face soon bristled with a stubble of beard. This lengthened with time. Sharp thorns tore their clothes to ribbon. Nanette, woman-like, cried many times during the nights because of the lack of a mirror and comb for her untidy hair. But other and more important events soon claimed the attention of the earth people. Day by day the herds of dinosaurs and other monsters of like breed edged closer and closer to the tiny civilization around the plateau. It worried Carruthers so much that he sought out Zark and had him bring the other six members of his tribe together for a council of war. A complete defensive system, Zark, he told them. We must make a fortress of the plateau and fill the caverns with food. Zark shook his head. No, it is quite useless. Followers of Marbo have recently returned from over the beyond and report strange things. I have hesitated to speak of them for fear of alarming you. Our planet is breaking up. Violent eruptions have caused fires of stone and mud. The rumblings you have heard were not made entirely by our enemies. They came from the ground. An earthquake, murmured Carruthers, momentarily stunned by the news. But they are always of short duration, Zark. We have them on our own planet. Ah, oh, but these are different. They cover the whole of our globe. The great Dahlgren noted them while he was with us. He wrote many words and figures on papers concerning them. Only yesterday I unearthed these records. The life of our planet was doomed to destruction during the present year. What matter if the herds of dinosaurs overrun us and destroy lives? In the end they too will be destroyed. It is fate. We can do nothing. Even as the old chieftain spoke, a gigantic rumbling, greater in intensity than heretofore, shook the electron. Above the deep rolling disturbance underground rose the shrill cries of the ape men. Carruthers leaped to his feet and raced through the tunnel. A herd of dinosaurs choked the paths leading to the outside entrance. Marbo brushed past him, shrilling in great excitement. Drive them away, ordered Carruthers, like this. He hurled a rock at the eye of the nearest animal. The dinosaur bellowed and backed away. The apes and gorillas, used to fighting only with their long arms, caught on to the stunt with surprising quickness. Their powerful arms reached out. Stones and boulders began to hurtle from the mouth of the tunnel. They thudded against the heads of the great monsters like hailstones. Subdued and frightened by this sudden display of force, the monsters withdrew down the path. But the ape men had discovered a new method of warfare. They found a childish delight in hurling stones. Within a few minutes the slope was barren of rocks. The animals followed up their momentary advantage and ran screaming down the path. The dinosaurs fled in panic. As soon as the enemy had been driven away, Carruthers pointed out to Marbo the advantage of gathering the stones up from the ground and returning them to the space around the mouth of the tunnel so that he and his followers would be ready for a second repulse. Zark appeared at this moment and helped with the explanation. His crafty old eyes turned with new respect upon the Earthman. Carruthers toiled with them every day from then on, building and fortifying the plateau against further incursions of the monsters. Security and peace reigned for several weeks, then hostilities broke out afresh. The rumblings of the electron had increased with each passing week. Volcanic eruptions poured fresh discharges of molten lava and fiery sparks along the edges of the jungles. I don't want to needlessly alarm you, Nan, he told her that night, but the fires have started. Zark was right. Unless we have rain before tomorrow morning, the heat and smoke will drive us out into the open. 
"'But we can go to the top of the plateau,' suggested the girl. "'There aren't any trees.' A concentrated bellowing cut off the rest of her words. Driven toward higher ground by the heat of the flames, the dinosaurs were trampling up the path leading to the tunnel. Once again Carruthers rallied his army of eight men around him and attempted to drive the animals away. As they reached the end of the tunnel, a cloud of dense smoke stung their eyes. The eight men shrilled in a sudden panic and forgot all their previous training in driving off the dinosaurs. Like scurrying rats, they scattered. Flames from the conflagration broke through the smoke, flames that leapt and twisted skyward. Carruthers flung off the fear that held him spellbound and started along up the path leading to the top of the plateau. A disheveled figure appeared suddenly at his side. Nanette! Come, he whispered hoarsely. We've got to get out of this or we'll choke to death. But Zark, breathed the girl, he and his followers are still in the cavern. We can't leave them. Like one demented of reason, Carruthers raced back along the tunnel to the cavern. Zark, he shouted. The sound of his voice was drowned in the welter of screaming bedlam coming up from below as the dinosaurs and apes fought for supremacy of life. But of Zark and his six followers he found absolutely no sign. Quickly he hurried back to where he had left Nanette. Even as he reached the spot, he had a sudden premonition of danger. A gorilla, huge and black, brushed past him on the path, carrying a limp burden under his shaggy arm. Stop, commanded Carruthers, hurrying after the animal. A huge arm knocked him sprawling. Spitting blood, Carruthers staggered to his feet. Up to this time he had no fear of the gorillas. They had been orderly and well-behaved. Fearful that harm would come to the girl, he ran after the dark figure ahead. The red glow of flame swept nearer. The gorilla came to a stop and faced its pursuer. Lust shone from its close-set eyes. Lust and passion. Carruthers stopped dead in his tracks. Drop her, he demanded. The animal snarled hoarsely. There came the sound of ripping cloth. Nanette screamed, a terrifying scream that echoed and re-echoed through the electron night. It was then that the thin cloak of civilization dropped from Aaron Carruthers' back. He became, in a single moment, an animal fighting for his mate. With a snarl equally vicious as that of the gorilla pawing at the helpless girl, he lunged forward. Mouthing his rage, the gorilla flung the earthman to the ground. Carruthers came up frothing at the mouth. With grim intensity, he fastened himself to the animal's free arm. The ranging mammal staggered helplessly under the extra burden and dropped the girl to concentrate his fury on the man. It raised a hairy arm aloft for the smashing blow. Instinctively, Carruthers released his hold. At that very moment, the electron lurched sickeningly, causing them both to lose their footing. The violent upheaval sent Carruthers one way and the gorilla the other. While the man stumbled to his feet to resume battle, he saw the infuriated monster stagger over the edge of the plateau wall into a sheer drop of a thousand feet. Starkly through the night came the growling roars of the giant beasts from the jungle below. Nanette fluttered to his side. Her dress was torn and ragged on the ground. For all her disheveled appearance, she was still beautiful to look upon. Forgetful of the danger on all sides of him, the animal and Carruthers saw in her pitifully half-clad body the same thing that the beast had desired. His head whirled hotly. Aaron, she pleaded as his arm reached out to clutch her. Hungrily, he drew her to him. The pale light of the electron moon mingled with the roaring blast of the flames. Madness inflamed his heart and pounded his blood. Don't, Aaron, protested the girl, trying to free herself. Something in the quality of the girl's frightened tones brought the man back to normal. He fought against the overwhelming desire to possess with all the force of his nature. 
and the better half triumphed. No longer was he an animal, but a reasoning human being. With a faint sigh, he released her and wiped a hand across his dripping forehead. "'I'm sorry, Nan,' he murmured. "'That great brute drove me mad for an instant. I'm all right now.' Together they stood in the electron night and watched death creep closer and closer. The plateau was entirely surrounded with flames now, and the heat was increasing with each passing moment. As it increased, they backed towards the center. From under their feet came the choking cries of the ape-men. They had returned to the cavern only to be overcome by smoke fumes, while yet the earth people stood there waiting and watching the red death creep nearer, the path leading downward into the jungle became a mass of moving shadows. "'The dinosaurs!' cried Nanette. "'Oh, Aaron, we're lost!' "'Steady, girl,' soothed the man. "'If we stand still, they might not see us in the dark. The smoke will destroy our scent.' But as the minutes passed, the herd of monsters increased. They crowded along the path and spread out over the top of the plateau. Once again the smell of their glistening bodies fouled the nostrils of the earth people. Slowly Carruthers guided Nanette back towards the rising of rocks. Perhaps the barrier would serve to keep the animals away. He scrambled across one of the boulders and pulled the girl after him. As he did so, a violet subterranean action shook the electron from one end to the other. Carruthers braced his feet against the ring of rocks to keep from pitching headlong to the ground. Nanette clung to him wordlessly. All around them the giant forces of nature raged sullenly. Twisting seams appeared in the rocky floor of the plateau from which oozed gaseous vapors. Courage, soothed Carruthers as he held the quivering body of the frightened girl close to his own. This can't last. But the ground continued to lurch and heave on its axis. Vivid lights crossed and crisscrossed the atomic heavens. The fissures in the ground appeared now as black canals. The lower part of the circle of boulders disappeared. Off to the right came despairing screams. White bodies glowed for an instant against the background of flames. Zark! shouted Carruthers as he saw the leader of the tribe of Esau and his followers making their way along the plateau top. Zark must have heard the earthman's voice, for he started forward at a run. Simultaneously there appeared a herd of the greatest of all the prehistoric monsters, the Brontosaurus. They balked enormously against the flame-licked skies. Zark and his followers attempted to avoid them, but fear of the scorching flames drove the monsters forward. There followed a maddening moment of unutterable pain for the remaining ones of the tribe of Esau. Then the herd trampled them underfoot and rumbled towards the half-circle of rocks where the two earth people were crouched. The leader of the Brontosaurus herd trumpeted madly and barged for the higher ground of safety. Too late did instinct warn it of the widening fissure underfoot. Before it could stop, the pressure of the herd drove it into the crevice. Carruthers drew back to the extreme inside edge of the boulders, trying to still his ears against the insane bellowings. A cloud of heavy choking smoke enveloped him for a moment, then passed away. Then it was that he saw a new star in the atomic heavens a star that seemed to burn with the brilliance of a meteor. Even as he watched, he was conscious of it drawing closer. The planet was now in a continuous uproar. The ground was heaving and trembling as if from some inward strain. This was the end. Carruthers realized it with a sinking heart. In another minute the electron would disintegrate into a flaming mass of matter and fling itself from its orbit around the atom. And then the light from the approaching star struck them in a blinding radiance of vermilion flames. Carruthers held his breath. 
Some invisible force seemed to take possession of his body and that of the girl at his side. The rocky plateau, now a boiling mass of rocks, dropped from under their feet. Clear, cold air enveloped their bodies. Then with the speed of light their bodies were hurled toward a planetary space, up, 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 into the vast reaches of the higher ether. Darkness assailed them. The flames from the jungle fire vanished into nothingness. The electron moon paled to the size of a pinpoint, then went out. Carruthers had the feeling of expansion and growth. It was as if his body was taking on the size of the whole world. It seemed to last for hours, days, ages. But all the while he clung fast to the slender, quivering body of Nanette. Mountains and hills suddenly blazed before his eyes, straight up and down mountains. He tried to stir his sluggish mind into action. What did they mean? Where had he seen them before? And while yet his mind struggled with the problem, the mountains dwindled like melting snow. The pressure around his body relaxed. A blinding glare of steady light played upon his face, then all was quietness and peace. Nan! Aaron! The voice was Carl's. Dazedly they looked around. What had once been mountains were now desks and chairs. They were back again in the laboratory. Several agonizing minutes passed before either could grasp the startling change in things. The horror of the electronic disaster still filled their minds to overflowing. Carruthers recovered first. He stepped from the railed enclosure, marking the spot where the atomic beam had restored them after their space flight, and guided the girl to a chair. Carl's face was drawn and white as his eyes rested on the two pitiful figures that had materialized out of the ether. "'Don't ask us any questions yet,' spoke Carruthers in a tired voice. "'We've passed through too many horrors.' "'What was the matter, Carl? Couldn't you get the rays to work sooner?' "'Sooner?' Danzig's eyes were wide with wonder. He glanced at his watch. It was a little difficult to control both machines all alone, but I switched off the ray from the inverse dimensional tubes and turned on the other immediately. All in all, it must have taken me fifteen seconds. Fifteen seconds, repeated Carruthers dazedly. It's unbelievable. He dropped wearily into a chair and rested his forehead in the palm of his hands. How long have we been gone, Nan? Nanette pulled the ragged remnants of a dress around her knees and attempted a smile. Almost four months, according to the passage of time on the electron. Impossible, whispered Danzig, shutting his eyes to the truth. Aaron Carruthers pointed to his clothes, now ragged and torn. Look, Carl, everything I have on is worn out completely. Observe my hair and beard, and the soles of my shoes. Human reason to the contrary, Nanette and I have lived like two animals for four months, and all in the space of fifteen seconds earth time. How can you account for it? We figured it out on paper. And we've proved it with our bodies. What it will mean to future civilization I can't foretell. It's beyond imagination. And the laboratory became silent as a tomb as three people tried with all the strength of their minds to grasp the miracle of the strange and unfathomable atomic rays. End of section 10. Recording by Jennifer Morehouse.